Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, November 8th. I'm Hannah Floor. Late this summer, two killer whales swam into an ocean-fed lake on Prince of Wales Island and got trapped. The effort to free the whales took a collaboration between scientists and residents of the remote island town of Kaufman Cove, with some extra help from the whales' friends. KFSK has the story. It's possible to get into Barnes Lake from the ocean, but only at high tide and a small boat. Doug Rhodes lives around the corner in Kaufman Cove, an ex-logging town with a winter population of around 100 people. He says the two entrances to the lake can be tricky to navigate. The north entrance is like a class four rapids at maybe two hours after the tide, and the south entrance is a waterfall. So it was a bit of a surprise when two killer whales found their way into the lake in mid-August. Rhodes says at first, people were more curious than concerned. It was kind of a novelty thing. You know, there's whales in Barnes Lake. Everybody just figured they'd get out on their own. But the window around high tide is short, and the entrances to the lake are small. The whales didn't get out on their own. After a couple of weeks, folks in Kaufman Cove called the experts. Biologists from NOAA's Whale Stranding Hotline gathered a group of researchers and scientists with experience in orca live strandings. They were concerned about the whale's body condition. The lake is freshwater fed, so it's less salty than the ocean, and orcas need salt water to survive. Jared Towers is a killer whale specialist with the Canadian government. He says he knew it was possible the whales could get out on their own, but there was another possibility. They end up dying in there. And, and dying a slow death because they're basically starving to death. That's because these were bigs, or transient killer whales. They eat mammals, not fish. Barnes Lake is full of salmon, but not many seals and sea lions. The response team decided that their best chance of getting the whales out was during the big tides in late September, a few weeks away. They would use nets in the water, which the whales experience as a barrier, and they would herd the whales using sound by submerging metal pipes in the lake and banging on the exposed end. The townspeople kept the scientists updated on the whale's health with photos. From these photos, Towers was able to identify the whales. One was a full-grown male, the other a juvenile male. Towers even knew which orcas they traveled with in the past. And not only that, he had actual recordings of those travel partners. The recordings could be played underwater to lure the stranded whales toward the sound, a technique called playback. Chloe Kotick studies big killer whales for her doctorate degree at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. She says the barrier nets and sounds of metal pipes are stressful to whales. She says playbacks can be really effective, but they're also stressful. When you play a recording of a killer whale that isn't really there, for them it's like seeing a ghost. Kotick and Towers arrived with two other scientists a few days before the high tides. More than six weeks after the whales were spotted, 14 small boats filed into Barnes Lake. They were carrying nearly half the population of Kaufman Cove. Towers and Kotick started the playbacks, luring the whales toward the North Channel. Volunteers in the boat banged the submerged pipes to urge them on. At first, it seemed to be working. The whales responded to the playbacks by breaching and slapping the water with their tails. They followed the sound and entered the North Channel. The boats lowered nets to keep the whales from turning back but a thick kelp bed was blocking the entrance to the channel. Time was short. The tide was going out. Towers says he knew it was their only shot that day. If that whale and the other one didn't make it through the kelp, our window was over. 
Then the bigger whale turned and swam back into the lake, ignoring the nets and sounds of the pipes. The younger whale was close behind. Tower says even the boats were in danger of getting stranded in the lake. Rapids were forming in the channel. We just radioed to the others and just said, you know, our, our time's up. Kotek says based on the weather forecast, they likely only had one more day to get the whales out. But more than that, she was worried they'd already asked too much of the volunteers. These people in Coffin Cove have already given us so much of their time and their energy and their help, and we didn't get them out today. How much can we really ask of them? Are they still going to be willing to help us out with this tomorrow? But when they got to the dock at Kaufman Cove, the volunteers were waiting, ready to make plans for the next day. It was such a weight off of my shoulders to realize, like, oh, my God, they're still in it with us. They haven't lost faith in us. They haven't lost hope. The next day, they started at the south entrance, which was free of kelp. This time, when the whales heard the playbacks, they were all business. Rhodes and Fecco were in a boat with nets. So they, they got out in the middle and played this uh, playback. We... Uh, looked up and we see the whales coming towards us now and they're picking up speed as he's as he's playing this the whale sound there was a bow wake in front of these whales and so they were just booking it as they charged toward the playback of their friends the whales called out the scientists underwater microphone picked up the sounds we were just standing there hearing whale sounds across the water as they came by and uh Oh, geez, there were people whooping and hollering and cheering. There were people crying out there. As they neared the southern entrance, one of the whales dove deep. They had to wait to deploy the nets until both whales were passed and in the channel. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Two, 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 right there. There they go. Go. They got the net out behind the whales. But Rhodes says it hardly seemed necessary. At that point, those guys were probably going 10 knots. They just didn't think twice. They just busted right on out of there. The playback boat led the whales through the channel. The southern entrance is long and windy and rocky. Towers said it took 10 to 15 minutes to pass through. I was holding my breath for a long time. I told myself, okay, when they're past the maple tree, we're good. Because there's this beautiful big Canadian maple on the shoreline at the beginning of the, the south channel. They passed the maple and they kept swimming out into Lake Bay, and then beyond. The boat followed them for a couple hours. Kotick says they weren't sure how the pair would adjust to their freedom. We just saw a kind of shift into this much more quiet, purposeful swim, and I think it was because they were starting to hunt, and that moment of seeing that shift was such a relief of, like, I really do think they're going to be okay. Towers and Kotick skiffed back to Kaufman Cove. They found a celebration in full swing. Doug Rhodes and Cheryl Fecco said the local bar got plenty of business that night. You couldn't hear in, in that bar. Everybody was just chattering away. And the bar was hopping. Everybody was in there. I, I don't know if the scientists bought a drink that night at all. Uh. <laughs> scientists don't know where the pair is now, but they will be spotted eventually. Researchers keep tabs on killer whales through photos sent in by scientists and civilians. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. Invasive species are more prevalent in Alaska than you might think. This week, a group of scientists, scholars, and interested members of the public are meeting in Sitka to cover a five-page agenda of some of the state's most troubling species. The Alaska Invasive Species Partnership is completely ad hoc. 
There is a representative from state and federal agencies, tribal governments, and universities, but the consortium officially belongs to none of them. Their common interest is preserving Alaska's native species. Tammy Davis is the Invasive Species Program Coordinator for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, who's been in Sitka often in recent years, working on an eradication project of the invasive tunicate de vex in Whiting Harbor. Gino Grazione is the University of Alaska Fairbanks Cooperative Extensive Service. The pair spoke with KCAW's Robert Woolsey about this week's workshop in Sitka. Started as a, a group uh, focused primarily on invasive plants um, under the name Committee of Noxious and Invasive Plant Management, and it was really brought about by um, a bunch of farmers in the interior part of the state wanting to work more on weeds, weed management issues with BLM and uh, Department of Transportation and some others, and then it really kind of just um, spread to statewide because it's it's not a single issue for one part of the state. So you've incorporated uh, marine invasives now into sort of the terrestrial program. Oh, yeah. What rises to top the list of the Invasive Species Partnership's priorities? Why are the things that are here on it? Are these just the main focus of interest of the, the people who are coming, or are these the, the invasives of highest concern in Alaska right now? Well, it's a little bit of both because um, the, a lot of the people coming are, are also southeast Alaska folks. So we, we rotate around the state and then um, try to get to places that are off of the road system, meaning not Fairbanks or Anchorage, and, um, and address some of those concerns. And so some of the ones like uh, there's a complex of knotweed species um, that are a common invasive uh, plant, big issue in southeast Alaska. Um, and uh, John Hudson and several others are going to be talking about it, as well as a, a speaker from Oregon State University talking about um, a possibility of introducing a biocontrol agent to take care of those uh, plants as well. Um, so, um, and then, um, and then, yeah, European green crab is a new one on the list too. This is now in southern southeast Alaska. Correct. Yes. So far, they've only been confirmed from waters of Metlakatla, which is the um, Annette Islands Reserve area. Um, we have the Department of Fish and Game has done some surveys outside of that area and not found green crab thus far. That doesn't mean they're not there. It just means we haven't found them. And what is the biggest threat associated with European green crab? Green crab are voracious one four inch wide carapace green crab can eat 20 clams in a day. And even if it isn't clams, it's one of the other benthic invertebrates that our ground fish, salmon, and other dungeness crab rely on for food. Did green crab get here on their own or did they hitch a ride? Likely they got here by larval distribution in the ocean currents. When I have worked with you in the past, Tammy, when you were out there in Whiting Harbor with your crew, they really kind of enjoyed trying to kill off DVEX. There was kind of an inspired, I don't know, a sense of camaraderie and trying all these different things. And I'm glad you have fun because there's there has to be lots of things that are not fun about invasive species. I mean, you no longer get ahead of one, then you hear about two more. At least that's sort of my perception just out in the public. I think that's true. There are many pathways that bring invasive species and spread them around. Humans move around and we bring the things that we like with us intentionally or unintentionally. 
one of the great things about the Alaska Invasive Species Partnership is it's no one's job to participate in this particular group necessarily. I mean, we all work on invasive species, but this is sort of an add-on to what we do in our day-to-day job for the different organizations that we work for. But um, everyone is really dedicated, and everyone is willing to give it the extra effort because I think we all care about the native resources that we have, and we want to protect them. That was ADF&G Invasive Species Coordinator Tammy Davis and UAF's Gino Graziano discussing this week's Alaska Invasive Species Partnership Workshop in Sitka. You can find a link to the conference agenda on our website, kfsk.org. Bristol Bay Setnet Fishers voted not to join the region's Seafood Development Association last month. The Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association announced in its newsletter on Friday that Setnetters rejected joining by a margin of just 19 votes. A yes vote would have granted all Bristol Bay Setnetters membership in the association at the cost of a 1% tax to help fund, fund its marketing and outreach efforts. Kevin McCambly is a Setnetter in the Nushigak district. He says he was against Setnetters joining the association because he didn't think paying into it would result in high payouts from processors. Joining this BBRSGA was going to, on, on some level, um, tax the fishermen to help promote a finished product that would benefit the processors. So we were almost doing their work for them through taxing ourselves. McCambly says grant opportunities by other organizations like the Bristol Bay Economic Development Corporation have improved the quality of their fish without the Development Association's direct support. Setnetter David Nichols voted yes to joining the association. He said in a social media message that he didn't think the association was perfect, but that, quote, we need to take whatever already exists and shape it into something that we can use to protect the future of the fishery, unquote. The association's executive director, Andy Wink, says staff were disappointed with the outcome. Unfortunately, for now, the issue appears settled. Uh, However, a lot of groundwork was done to set up bylaws and policies for integrating set netters into the BBRSDA. So the door is still open in the future, and we'll we'll see what comes. The election results were certified last week. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.